go to hell are there not with the sense of oh yeah this is this is what I get right mm-hmm. it's it's how dare you right they're they're actually angry with God for for doing these things for sending them there for giving them what it is that they really wanted and I think that's one of the things that's really key with our understanding of hell is that ultimately it's it's God giving that person what they did want which yeah. is not him Pastor John, and this is Every Moment His, a podcast devoted to how the sermon applies to everyday life uh, beyond Sunday. And today, once again, I have a guest with me. I have uh, Pastor Quentin Cundiff from up in Trinity Amherst. Uh, So thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So as we get started, uh, you just want to give us a little bit of background, your family, your ministry. Uh, Sure. So I am... uh, married. I have two and a half kids, I often tell people. I have an adopted son who's, he just turned 17 yesterday. I have a biological son who is nine, and then um, my younger half-brother lived with us before he went off, and now he's serving in the military, so he's kind of a half-kid, I, I often uh, say. <laughs> okay, good. And how long have you been up in Amherst? Uh, I got to Amherst in October of last year. Prior to that, uh, I was serving in New Mexico for five years, and then before that, my first call out of the seminary was to the Oregon coast, and I had a dual parish on the Oregon coast for, uh, I think I was there for about three and a half years before I left. Good, good. And now, this was kind of a return for home a little bit for you, right, because you're from Kansas. I am, yeah. My my parents live in northwest Kansas, about two hours from here, so it's good I'm able to, you know, fulfill that vocation as son and be there for my parents as they mm-hmm. as they need it. Yeah, that's true for me, too, in coming home uh, and moving to Kearney. For me, that was uh, a way to be closer to my family in Omaha, and I oh, have family sure. in Grand Island and e- even here in Kearney, so it's been it's been nice to to be close to family, and so what about your wife? Is she from this area? She's from Iowa. Iowa, okay. Yeah, so okay. we're closer to her family than we've ever been before either. So a lot closer <laughs> than Oregon, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> or New Mexico, for that matter. Uh, well, good. So uh, just like uh, Pastor Keithner uh, and I were preaching on the same parable last week, uh, you and I are preaching on the same parable this week. Correct. And that would be the parable of the weeds. It gets kind of different names, doesn't it, depending on the translation? Yeah, sometimes I think it's called the parable of the, the wheat and the tares, I think is mm-hmm. another way that it's sometimes been kind of titled. We have to remember that Jesus didn't actually give these titles. These are right. titles from other people over <laughs> the ages. The, the editors at the publishing company, uh, or sometimes other people have suggested these titles, uh, but uh, certainly there is... There's wheat and there are tares or mm-hmm. weeds. Right. It uh, makes me think of uh, the season we're in right now where a lot of uh, young people are out in the fields. Uh, what are they called? I think they're called um, these weeds that they pull out with soybeans. Thistles? Is it called roguing, maybe? Oh, eh, that I don't know. Maybe I botched that, but <clears throat> I remember, and maybe you remember this as a kid, was uh, detasseling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, in Kansas, we don't have a lot of corn, but I, I remember when we were in college that people would talk about having jobs in, in the summer of going out and detasseling and yeah. stuff. Yeah. Never did that, but sounds fun. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, 
we're going to talk a little bit today about this, uh, the, the parable in general, but one of the questions we want to go into more specifically uh, within the text is this question of hell, and not a, a cheery thing to talk about, uh, but I think it's important that as pastors we're able to, to talk with clarity about things that might not be comfortable. And as we've been journeying through the Gospel of Matthew, we've certainly come through things that are not very comfortable, like when Jesus says, you've got to love me more than your mom and dad, or you're not worthy of me, or I have not come to bring peace but a sword. You know, some of these, these uncomfortable statements of Jesus, I think it's good that we just put them out in the open, uh, go into them, discuss them, so we have a more mature, robust faith, and not just one that's kind of a pick-and-choose faith. Agreed. Yeah, we... Ha- I think we oftentimes see that people try to sanitize Jesus and, and oh, yeah. we don't want to talk about the the hard things that Jesus said, but it's actually quite important that we we know them and that we study them and delve into the texts. Yeah, we, we devoted a whole podcast episode to that and you know, people might want like a buddy Christ or maybe Jesus is my homeboy or even uh, South Park. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the Jesus portrayed on South Park is kind of a he's kind of a hippie, right? You know, he's just kind of a like, hey guys, you know, uh, right? Just super nice and yeah, yeah, and never says anything uncomfortable. So, uh, so now while we're talking specifically about uh, the doctrine of hell, of eternal damnation, of of God's divine justice, uh, lots of different names we can use for this. While we're specifically addressing that question, before we do that, let's just talk about the parable a little bit. And in when I preached the sermon, I I preached it with, uh, I added in the parable of the net uh, in verses 47 through 50 because they kind of have the same ending, weeping and gnashing of teeth and stuff. Right. But um, you're preaching along with me on the parable of the weeds. So, so how are you going to go at that uh, this Sunday? What's kind of your main point? So I think one of the things that's helpful in terms of our um, reading of this text is that we we read these things in light of those who have come before us, right? This, the idea that we stand on the shoulders of giants. Mm-hmm. And one of the sermons that I read uh, in preparation of this, and I don't want people to think that we just rip off old sermons when we're, <laughs> when we're writing our sermons, but uh, St. Augustine uh, from the... the fourth century has a sermon on this very text. And the way Augustine approaches it is that the world that is, or the field, right, that that is being sown by the Son of Man is the church. And so Mm -hmm. that even within the church, you have this uh, kind of commingling of the, the sons of the kingdom and those who were sown by the evil one. And one of the things that I really appreciated about this uh, sermon is that Augustine is actually so uh, self-aware that he even actually goes so far as to say, and don't think that I'm talking only about you out there. Mm-hmm. This even applies to the people up here. And we have oh, to understand yeah. that within his church, right, there, there was actually a, a distinction and, and the, the pulpit and stuff would have been higher where the bishop would be sitting would be higher than what we would often think of. But he, mm-hmm. he makes a point that even amongst clergy, there are weeds and the wheat, right? And yeah. so we, we have to, to be able to know what is there. You know, and I think about uh, Augustine's situation. You know, Rome was kind of falling apart 
then and you know historically the the church was no longer severely persecuted as it was in previous centuries and so you had you had people coming into christianity um and and maybe there was more social advantage than there was disadvantage in the past that that cult culturally christianity was becoming more and more acceptable and and popular and so you had people coming in and uh maybe who um, were hypocrites or actually unbelievers or whose lives never gave any evidence of conversion, uh, regeneration. Uh, and so, yeah, I wonder if Augustine uh, was addressing that. And even among clergy, right, that you'd have some, who was it? Was it Cyprian, I think, said that that, that, that hell is lined with the skulls of priests. The, the road to hell is paved with the skulls of priests, and the signposts are the skulls of bishops, I believe, was... Yeah. Is the full quote. Yeah, I, and I think it's actually been assigned to or ascribed to a few church fathers. I'm not exactly sure where it comes Sometimes from. Sometimes we don't know. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, we don't know who gets the quote for that greatest hits. <laughs> uh, but, but the idea here is that, and I think this applies with the Pharisees, that those who have... Uh, this, this stewardship of God's word can sometimes be the ones who are the most hypocritical or selfish with it, who will know the most and live the least in accordance with it. Right. Uh, I wonder if Augustine would have had a podcast if he could have. I don't know. I don't know. I know Augustine sometimes got a little little cheeky with his listeners, so I, I imagine that if he did, his podcast would have been pretty entertaining. He would have never had Pelagius on there. No, he would not have. Pelagius was a, <laughs> a guy that Augustine threw under the bus because he said that you could be saved by works, right. not by grace. And Augustine was a great church father who emphasized the grace of God. So um, I'm taking a little bit of a different direction with my sermon. And, and while I, I believe that Augustine is, is right, and I believe you're right too, is that there are those who are the weeds among the wheat, that within the, the visible church in the congregation, among the membership of God's worshiping people, there, there are those who do not have a true saving faith in Jesus Christ and who, if they persist in that, will not be saved. Mm -hmm. um, I'm focusing a little bit more on how this parable would have been a comfort for the disciples of Jesus because there, in fact, um, Dr. Joel Bierman at, at uh, Concordia Seminary preached a sermon on this in, in chapel. Uh, those are all online, so I, I listened to it uh, this past week where he was saying that that the uh, that the early church would have really struggled with this whole question of if Jesus is Lord, then why is Caesar in control? At least as far as we can tell with our senses, mm -hmm. if the kingdom of God has arrived in power, then why are all the bad people in charge? And and so uh, Bierman was talking about how this this parable is the closest thing to a theodicy or an explanation of evil within the New Testament that you get. Uh, that it's saying this is God's plan contrary to our expectations as he lets the evil and the righteous grow up in this world together and then at the last day he'll sort out the evil from the righteous and God will give justice both an elevating justice and a putting down justice and, and that was good news for Christians because although they did not have a place of authority or power uh, they knew that God's kingdom would win and that gave them boldness and renewed courage uh, to do their work Right. Um, so with that then, I talked about how while the ending would have been comforting for early believers, the ending of weeping and gnashing and teeth and outer darkness, all that kind of stuff, 
it's not so comforting for us now, perhaps, that we struggle with this doctrine of hell. So hence the topic of the podcast. Right. Yeah. So let's just talk about what is hell. Um, you want to start maybe with the Old Testament. Does the Old Testament talk about hell at all? Yeah. So in the Old Testament, there's a word that is used often, uh, which is Sheol. Mm. And uh, Sheol is kind of a place of of uh, shadow. It's a place of the dead. Um, it's obviously there's been a lot of ink spilled about this in terms of yeah. you know whether or not this is a more accurate depiction of life after death versus uh, the New Testament and and such. But because there's there's kind of a shift as Jesus comes, he kind of dials it in, and, and I'll let you talk about that here in a minute. But um, one of the things that I think is really helpful in terms of our understanding of, of these things is rather than saying that, well, it's because of the Greco-Roman influence later on that you have this change in the New Testament, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's more important for us to see in keeping with the work of the prophets that the prophets saw these things from far away. And one of the examples that I really, really think is helpful about this, um, as we talk about the work of the Old Testament prophets and stuff, is seeing the mountains from far away. And of course, we're in Nebraska, so there aren't many mountains here. <laughs> They're really but, far away. Yeah. Right. Um, but, you know, when you do go into Colorado or, you, you know, you go out into the Rocky Mountains, you begin to see from a distance all of these, like, shapes that just sort of start to appear in the on the horizon. And then as you get closer and closer, you'll be able to see uh, more definition. You can Mm -hmm. see that there's, um, you know, some of them are taller than others. Some of them are closer than others and stuff. And so really, I think what's going on when we see Sheol in the Old Testament as this place of kind of the dead in general is that it's being seen from from far away without the light of Christ really shining on it and, and making things more clear. Well, and I, I think that works with a lot of doctrines in the in the Bible. So, for example, the doctrine of the Trinity. Right. Um, it's never spelled out, you know, clearly in the Old Testament, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But once you see it clearly in the New Testament, you can't miss it in the Old Testament. Right. And I think that applies to even these questions of, of life everlasting versus, you know, death and uh, uh, eternal judgment and eternal uh, uh, bliss that you, you see it clearly in the New Testament, in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And then now, like, as I read the Psalms, I see it all over. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I'm seeing it in light of Christ. Yeah. So, so we don't have a formal teaching of heaven and hell in the Old Testament uh, necessarily. But when we get to the New Testament, we see this, this further developed or understood. Yeah, yeah and, and I, I do want to point out that even in the Old Testament, you do see... Um, for those who are faithful, um, like I, I'm reminded of Job, for example, you know, mm-hmm. I, I know that I will see God with my own eyes, right? right. Mm-hmm. There is very clearly an understanding amongst God's people that when we die, it's not just, you know, darkness and shadow, right? It's, yeah. it's not this um, Greco-Roman understanding of hell that sort of gets tweaked by Jesus. It is something quite different. Yeah, yeah, and so for example, you know, you have uh, they went to rest with their fathers, right? Or uh, you have uh, even Isaiah saying in in his prophecies that your dead shall rise. Uh, so yeah, 
Um, now let's talk. Let's let's talk about the New Testament here. Uh, and the New Testament, I would say, has different ways of speaking about the same thing. Mm-hmm. So Jesus and and get this, it's I'd say Jesus speaks about hell more than the Apostle Paul does. He does, yeah, clearly. And we don't. The Apostle Paul doesn't have a reputation for like holding little children and blessing them. <laughs> Maybe he did, but we see Jesus doing that. And so let's just be aware of this: that the same Jesus that blesses and welcomes children is the same Jesus who will talk about the reality of divine judgment. And and Jesus has given us some different language. And I would say this language is not Jesus's alone, that Jesus to some extent is using language uh, in what we call sec- second temple Judaism, uh, the Judaism of, of his day, the Jewish beliefs um, of even the Pharisees, because mm-hmm. the Pharisees believed in hell. Um, but so let's talk about a couple different uh, terms here that Jesus uses, especially in Matthew's gospel. We'll kind of toss it back and forth. How about you take uh, um, outer darkness? Uh, so the outer darkness is the place of danger, mm-hmm. right? So if you're if you're in your house at night and you've got your lamp on, right, you've got light. If you're out, kind of outside your house, but you can still see the light, you know, okay, I can kind of see or find my way around. But being out in the outer darkness, I understand it to be like. There's no light there. It's just that's the dark. It's dark. darkness, and mm-hmm. you don't know what's out there. That's when you're in the middle of Cherry County, Nebraska, where there's one person per square mile, and there's no full moon, and the clouds are over. It's overcast, and you don't have a flashlight or a cell phone. Right. And you're in the middle of nowhere, and you can't see your hand in front of your face. Right. Yeah. That okay. That makes sense. Um, I'm going to take, uh, just because I like to, to say the Hebrew guttural here, or the Aramaic guttural, uh-huh. Gehenna. Would there be a guttural sound with that? Maybe? I think so, yeah. Yeah, it's okay. just fun to say. It's not a fun word, let's be clear on that, um, not to make light of it. But when, when you see the word hell in, in the Gospels, there might be a little footnote. There most certainly is in your ESV Bible, if you're using that, that translation, Usually that word hell is is the word Gehenna, which would have been a uh, Aramaic word, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Aramaic was a was a Semitic language uh, with some parallels to Hebrew, and uh, it would have been what Jesus would have spoken. And that word it it's referring actually to a place, right? It's referring to a valley outside of Jerusalem. It's the Valley of Kidron, I think. Maybe I'd have to go look that up in my Bible dictionary. Uh, but it is the place where they put the trash. Right. And it would have been uh, foul-smelling. It would have been smoldering with smoke because they would burn things. Yeah, the, the, that idea of it being burning all the time kind of is, is a point that Jesus is making. And and it's helpful to, to n- kind of have that idea in your mind that Jesus, when he's talking about hell, it's not just this, this abstract thing. He's actually kind of, you can kind of picture in your mind, he's kind of pointing like, hey, that thing that's over there, yeah. It's like that, only worse. <laughs> right, right. A place of, of refuge, a, a place where they would put unclean things. Mm-hmm. Um, even if, if I remember correctly, they would even put uh, the bodies of criminals and things like that. They, they would just could, be, yeah. be thrown there. So uh, I'm going to toss to you now this one, uh, the, the gnashing of teeth. Yeah, the gnashing of teeth is one that I, I find to be a really fascinating uh, addition uh, the way that our Lord speaks about it because the gnashing of teeth in the ancient world was something that you did when you were angry. Mm. Right? We we oftentimes think of 
you know, so a person goes to hell where, you know, it's, it's fire and it's hot and it's terrible, it's miserable, right? And so you you maybe hear gnashing of teeth kind of in that way, like the person is in such agony that they're gritting their teeth or they're, you know, they're, they're trying to bite down on something just to make the pain uh, tolerable, but that's actually not what's going on with the gnashing of teeth. Gnashing of teeth is what you did when you were filled with anger and indignation. So the people who, who go to hell are there not with the sense of, oh yeah, this is, this is what I get, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's how dare you, right? They're, they're actually angry with God for, for doing these things, for sending them there, for giving them what it is that they really wanted. And I think that's one of the things that's really key with our understanding of hell is that ultimately it's, it's God giving that person what they did want, which yeah. is not him. Yeah, and, and uh, it makes me think of the C.S. Lewis quote where he talks about hell quite a bit in the problem of pain, I believe. But he, uh, he says that there's two types of people, which the, this parable says there's really two types of people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's two types of people, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. And, and so God really gives people what they want. And, and you can imagine, you know, if somebody thinks that, that heaven is like an eternal Disneyland, I mean, or a golf course, right? <laughs> or a day on the beach, then, well, everybody wants to go there. But if, if you believe that, that heaven, that life everlasting, the new creation, is the worship and the adoration of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit forever, you know, gathered around the throne of God, uh, that sounds like hell to some people, right? Some people would look at the Christian definition of everlasting life and say, no, thank you. I didn't want that in this life, and I don't want it in the next. I'd rather be in the outer darkness. Right. But then you also have this, this sense of gnashing of teeth where I imagine, for example, the Pharisees, and Jesus very clearly tells the Pharisees that they're in danger of Gehenna, of hell, because he says, you know, your son's a perdition, that, that you will receive the greater condemnation. Now, they thought that they were sons of the kingdom, right? Right. They thought that the kingdom belonged to them, and yet Jesus flips it and says, no, the kingdom is actually for those uh, who know that they're not righteous, who know that they're sinners, who know that they're sick, and that they are actually excluded. So I can see that kind of like gnashing of teeth, this anger. How dare you exclude me because I was righteous. I was a good person. I deserved it. Right. Um, Yeah. And, And Jesus even speaks like that himself when he talks about how there will be those who come to him and say, you know, Lord, Lord, and, and he will say, I never knew you, right? There, mm-hmm. And this is why Augustine takes the tack that he takes with this parable of understanding that even within the church, there are weeds and wheat commingled. So, for example, if somebody is, you know, says, well, I'm a, I'm a Christian because grandma took me to church every once in a while as a kid or because I got confirmed mm-hmm. or because I sing in the choir or because I'm in church every week. You know, we, we're, and ultimately, though, that's looking for assurance in something other than Christ, right? Right. Yeah. So, all right. Um, let's move on here a little bit. And um, why might we have a hard time with this doctrine? Because would you agree with me that for the average person sitting in the pews, even for Christians, we might have kind of a problem with this doctrine. We might be uncomfortable. Why do you think that might be? 
I think the largest issue with it is it's not nice, right? We, we've got this idea that God is nice. And by the way, the word nice is not in the Bible. Right. <laughs> Nowhere. The, the word love is, mm-hmm. but the word nice is not. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. But God is supposed to be nice. And if he's not nice, I don't know God. Right. And, and so it really can be something that creates a great deal of, I think, uncertainty and, and almost fear in people because hey, there's an idea about God here that's that's bigger than what I think God is supposed to be, and that that's actually really quite frightening for folks, I think. It, it, it is, uh, to quote C.S. Lewis again, if, if any of our listeners have read the Chronicles of the Narnia, uh, I think there is a, a, a scene in there uh, where one of the kids asks about Aslan, the, the lion, who is the Christ figure, you know, is he safe? And And I think the response is, uh, he's not safe, but he's good. Right. And and the thing about God is is God is is not tamed, right? I mean, God does what God does, and and whatever God does is just because there's no higher standard of justice to which God is accountable. So whatever God does is just, and I just think that we lack that. I would even say, uh, to kind of go off of what you were saying, that we don't really understand the full character of God. We understand His love, perhaps but we don't understand his justice and his holiness. Right. His fierce hatred for, for sin, for anything that violates his glory or the image of God in us, um, he is an enemy of those things. And so just like we would expect to see people who violate laws be punished, um, those who violate the law of God are rightfully under his punishment because he's a holy God. And I don't think that people rightly understand that because we may see God as kind of, well, whatever you want God to be. Mm -hmm. Have you heard people maybe refer to God as like the universe or like good vibes or a positive energy? Yeah, that's sort of a uh, really simplistic idea of God. And I think it's, it allows a person to have a God who is um, really impersonal. I think C.S. Lewis speaks like this as well, that, you know, th- there's, if you have a God who's essentially just a, a force, then he's mm-hmm. not going to hold you accountable for anything because yeah. it's not actually a person. It's just a, an entity. Yeah. Like, like in Star Wars, the force isn't really personal, right? It doesn't have a preference of good or evil necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, there's going to be somebody who's going to write in and say, Pastor John, you totally botched your Star Wars knowledge. Uh, but Give me a pass. Well, as someone who has some lightsabers at home, I'm pretty sure that you got it right on that one. Good. Okay, good. <laughs> Resident expert. Okay. My son would kind of explain it to me. Uh, you know, Dad, you got that totally wrong. Actually. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, also let's talk about this concept of don't we all just kind of basically think we're good people? And we have to be careful here because Scripture does say at one level that we are good. And, and to be human is a good thing. It's a highly dignified thing. Mm-hmm. But we are good things, cre- creatures of God that are good, that have gone really bad. And it's because of our goodness. Like, you know, if something is, like nobody mourns over their, you know, their beat up 83 Ford ex- uh, Escort that gets hit, you know, and totaled. 
necessarily, but if you have a BMW that's like you know sixty thousand dollars and somebody runs into it, you're going to mourn that. Right. And I think it's the same thing with the image of God that we have this this huge value before God. And I think the tragedy of sin is is that we've fallen from such a place of dignity, and God holds us accountable for that. But while it is good to be human, we are not good morally. Yeah, and I think that that I that issue of good is the question, right? What does it mean to be good? Mm-hmm. Good is a really vague term. It's very generic. Um, I can have a piece of pizza that's good. I can watch yeah. a movie that's good. I can have a friend that is a good friend. And good means a different thing in all three of those contexts. And so we have to be, I think we have to be careful and actually try to dial in more what good means, which is why I think Scripture gives us the word of righteous, which is a far more helpful word. Mm -hmm. And so apart from Christ, we are unrighteous. And I can be good. I can, you know, save a bus full of, you know, blind children from going off of a cliff. But if I'm without faith, I'm still unrighteous, even if I am in the eyes of my neighbor, good. And, and yeah, even that term righteous is very much a relational term, that you are either in a right relationship with God or not. And so you can be in a right relationship with other people and be counted as righteous or good before other people. And Luther makes this distinction, right? He talks Mm -hmm. about you can be a good citizen, you can be a good, helpful neighbor, even apart from being a Christian. But that's an entirely different thing than being righteous before God. Right. Because to be righteous before God is is a gift that we must receive through faith in, in Jesus Christ alone. Yeah. And so I think we have this idea in society that, you know, like most people are basically good and and how could God send good people to hell? Well the truth is that there's no good people. <laughs> And, and being a Christian means, in part, ad- acknowledging that, um, that I'm not good. Left to my own, I'm rotten, you know. Right, and yeah. Scripture says, you know, no one is righteous, no, not one. Mm-hmm. And, and so, again, that distinction between being good and being righteous, right? No one is righteous apart from Christ. Yeah. I heard the quote once that we live in an age in which uh, nothing is forgiven because everything is permissible. And I think that we've lost this sense of, of justice, of morality. And yet in our discussion before this, we talked about how some people in our society, this comes across in social media too, really have this renewed sense of morality and there's no forgiveness. Uh, we even talked about how there's this concept of even a secular hell. Uh, so... If you say something on social media that, 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 that someone disagrees with that, uh, that's offensive, then, then you can lose your job, you can be canceled, and in this way you are consigned to a sort of secular hell, right? Right. And I think it's really intriguing as we look at the world around us and we see how, on the one hand, the world does everything it can to reject the idea of God, hmm. but on the other hand, does everything it can to hang on to the trappings of faith. Um, you know, talking about, uh, you just backing up a little bit as we were talking about that idea of an impersonal force, right? Um, evolution, as it is often talked about, is supposed to be this completely impersonal, 
uh, force, right? It's, just, it's not even a force necessarily. It's just sort of it's the a thing that maker. happens, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But yet people talk about it as evolution did this. They, they, they personify evolution. So, so we have then this secular f- entity, right, that people can choose to use then to determine their own morality and now we have then sin which is defined newly Um, we have hell and punishment and justice right all of these things that people want no part of if it has the trappings of of the true god and and faith and christ wrapped around it but if we strip christ away people still cling to those things desperately As I've heard it put before, even if you don't believe in God, you still have to live in God's world. Right. And in God's world, we have this sense of morality and justice. And even if you try to suppress those things, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1 and 2, if you try to suppress these things, it's kind of like pushing a beach ball underwater because if, if somebody says, I'm not religious, then their religion just comes out in some other way. But mm-hmm. um, So let's kind of a closing thought here. We've talked about um, what hell is, why we have a hard time with it. Uh, let's talk about this very serious question of who goes there and who doesn't. Well, the, I think the first question we have to ask is, who's worthy of going there? And the answer to that question is everyone, right? Everyone is worthy of going there. I'm not saying that everyone does, but apart from Christ, that's what we all deserve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even Mother Teresa Right. Yeah. Everybody. Everybody. And and Jesus makes that clear, right? That salvation then only comes through him. And and so one of the questions that a lot of Christians like to ask is, you know, are you saved or have you been saved? Mm-hmm. Oftentimes it's kind of fun to 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 ask ask in response from what? Yeah. Right. And and mm-hmm. This is this is the from what this is from what you have been saved is yeah. is hell and does this not lead us then to treasure our Lord Jesus all the more that and to treasure our baptism to treasure the Lord's Supper to treasure the Word of God preached to us because all those things deliver to us that saving good news right and, right and uh, we would not trivialize or neglect those things right if we would recognize what's being given to us in them. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, let's let's talk about this question then of well, who does who does uh, inherit everlasting life? Who will at the resurrection of all people? Because Jesus says in John five, all people will be raised, some for judgment and some for life. Who will be those ones who will have life? It is those who are justified by faith in Christ, right? Um, and in the in the parable text, Jesus talks about, you know, the, the righteous will shine on mm-hmm. at the harvest, right? And so we see this, uh, this joy that it brings. And I think one of the issues that makes hell such a frightening thing for people is we have to ask that question of, okay, well, what does this mean about my cousin or my mm-hmm. friend or my next door neighbor who I know doesn't believe yeah. are, are you saying pastor that that person is consigned to hell and if that person does not have faith that's the danger mm-hmm. and so you know we we rejoice that those who are in Christ do find salvation that those who are in Christ do have 
uh, eternal life in with God, right? In heaven as we wait for the resurrection and then in the new creation. And so that fear can lead us to a kind of universalism, I think, of saying, oh, well, God lets everybody in and, and everybody must be fine. And, and yeah. that's not what Jesus is actually talking about. And this parable shows it. So, for example, there, there was that book by Rob Bell. Yeah. Uh, he's not as much of a, of a big deal anymore, but maybe 10 years ago, everybody was reading Rob Bell's books. Uh, he was a popular uh, writer of, at that time, would have been called Christian books. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but he kind of fell out of the, uh, the Christian book scene when he wrote his book called Love Wins. And it was basically him kind of taking just some random, out-of-context Bible verses and church father quotes to try to defend this doctrine of universalism, the idea that everyone will eventually be saved. And, and I just don't think you can read the New Testament or the Bible as a whole and come to that. If you're going to take Jesus' words seriously, you can't come to that conclusion. Um, and so this is a call you know, for us to, to see that one place where, where life is given. The other language of the text that's used is this language of the sons and the daughters of the kingdom. And that makes me think of this biblical teaching of adoption, that mm-hmm. through Jesus Christ, who suffered in our place, we have been freely and graciously adopted into the family and called sons and daughters of the Father. Those are the ones who inherit the new world. Those are the ones who have life everlasting. Um, now, Really, if we think about it, if we're talking about fairness, uh, this teaching that we're saved by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ should be more offensive, don't you think? Absolutely, it should be, because there's nothing fair about it. There's nothing fair that Jesus had to die for your sins and mine. There's nothing Mm -hmm. fair about what Christ has done for us, but yet he gives those gifts to us freely. And he gives those gifts to, he offers those gifts to all people. Right. And so when when the person is sitting there fretting about, well, what about my cousin or my best friend or my neighbor? Talk to them, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, share the faith with them. And that doesn't mean that it has to be a ham-fisted thing where, you know, you, I'm not going to leave until you accept Jesus or something <laughs> like that. That's, not, yeah, what right. we're, that's yeah. not what we're about. But for a, us to actually talk about our faith and actually be open about our faith is the way that the church has always spread the gospel. It's, it's not necessarily through, through this program or that program or, you know, I'm going to teach you the, the right things to say. It's, it's Christians being open and honest about their faith and, and believing it. Yeah, living lives that are consistent with it, exactly. Yeah, and, you know, if somebody were to come to me and say, why, why are you a Christian? I mean, there's different levels that you could discuss that. Like, I could talk about some intellectual things, like why I think that the Christian faith is credible compared to other faiths or philosophies, you know, but, but really, if we're going to get to the heart of the question of, like, why are you a Christian instead of not a Christian, um, I'm never going to point the finger to myself. And this is where it sounds unfair. Mm-hmm. Um, I am not a Christian because I make good decisions. I am not a Christian because of my willpower or my reason. Like we say in the catechism, I cannot by my own reason or strength. I am not a Christian for any of those reasons. I'm a Christian because first, uh, Christ died for my sins, uh, because I was baptized into his name, because the word of God uh, did its work upon me. Uh, 
even we can use that language of election, saying that, that God has freely and graciously chosen me. Um, and so the question, why am I a Christian, it has nothing to do with me. <laughs> right. I'm just the recipient of it to my great joy. And yes, people can resist that. And, and uh, But when it comes to why we're Christians, there's this huge humility that we have. And, and in the world's ears, it sounds unfair. Mm-hmm. And, a, and a word of caution then to our listeners who, you know, live in this area and, and who, you know, have grown up with this faith, right? Um, notice that none of those reasons that you're a Christian are because, well, my parents took me to Sunday school. Yeah, or right? I was confirmed. Right. None of those things, or those things are not what make a person a Christian. What makes a person a Christian is truly understanding what Christ has done for them. Mm-hmm. And, and that is something that really matters. And so if a person is that, you know, that individual who just sort of, I've always done this and it's just sort of the, the, the rote thing that I always have to do, I invite that person to pause and take a moment and really consider, right, what does it mean that you have this wonderful gift, right? It, it's, I would often compare, I would not often compare, but as, as we've been talking, I kind of think about a person who, who has that, you know, $60,000 BMW and drives it and treats it like an 83 Ford Taurus, <laughs> right? They, they have this wonderful, amazing thing mm-hmm. and they treat it like it's something that's, that's common and something that, that really means little. Yeah, so for example, if you have somebody who says, oh yeah, I'm a member of the church, but you know, I'm never going to go. I'm never going to um, participate. And obviously we have a weird season we're in with the, this whole COVID thing, but I mean like like on the regular, mm-hmm. in normal life, you're just not going to really participate in, in worship. Uh, but you'd say you're a Christian. You know, it's kind of like, well, you have the BMW, why aren't you driving it? Right. You're just parking it. Right. <laughs> you know, and, and there's a call to repent uh, so that you would not be uh, that soil that doesn't bear any fruit or to be a weed, to be revealed to be a weed at the last day right. rather than wheat. And that's one of the points that Jesus makes in the parable that, that we haven't talked about, that the, the difference between the weeds and the wheat is only revealed mm-hmm. when the wheat begins bearing fruit. Right. Yeah. They don't they don't walk out there the next morning after the enemy has desecrated the, the field. They don't see that the weeds are there until, hey, some of these are bearing fruit, some of them aren't. Oh, those aren't that aren't are actually weeds, right? And then by that point you can't rip them out. And this is why we can't go through the church and, you know, drag people out. We're not gonna grab people by the collar and say, You're a weed, get out of here because <laughs> right. it it hurts the rest of the wheat that's still there. Mm. And yeah. so that, that creates that tension then that we have to live with in this life. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, we are out of time, but this has been time well spent, and I'm thankful for your time and driving down here all the way from Amherst. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the long trek. <laughs> the long trek on Highway 40 to come down here. Is it Highway 40? Yeah. Yeah, I was yeah. want to say 44 because in St. Louis yeah. there was Interstate 44, but... Um, but thanks for being with us, and uh, just a little bit of a preview. What are you going to preach on next week? Do you know? Um, I know it's written down. I don't know what it's going to be the next week, though. You think you'll go with the Gospels? I, I think so. I can't remember. <laughs> okay, I won't make you say yes or no, because if any of your members listen to this, then they're 
they're going to expect it. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be doing the uh, the end of the parables. Uh, Pastor Tim, <laughs> he has the leftover parables uh, <laughs> to preach on uh, the parable of the uh, the pearl and the great treasure and and all the the stuff that ends out chapter thirteen. So that's what he gets for going on vacation. Yep, you go on vacation, you get the the last parables. So. <laughs> All right. Well, good. And uh, join us next week as we continue our discussion of how God's Word applies to our daily life.